2: Well good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice show. James Lynn is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today we'll talk with Adam Michelle, senior policy analyst with the Grover Herman Center for the Federal Budget on tuition free college, the green new deal, socialist healthcare. A study has found it's impossible to pay for all of them by only squeezing the rich. We'll find out what it would actually cost and who would pay. We're also going to reprise a conversation I had with uh, Don Everts. The uh, book is The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. That's coming up in both uh, conversations in the 5 o'clock hour. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, the Trump administration today plans to end a legal loophole that has allowed illegal immigrant families to enter the United States. According to reports, the action will replace a court order known as the Flores settlement that's helped create a catch and release policy regarding immigration families. Under the new policy, migrant families could be de- detained together while immigration judges consider their case instead of being released after 20 days as stipulated under Flores. Uh, and uh, children would be allowed to stay with their parents for the duration. And the president on Tuesday canceled a planned meeting with Danish prime minister Met Friedrichsen, saying there was no point of the, uh, for the trip after Friedrichsen called the idea that the president, that the U.S. rather, might buy Greenland from Denmark absurd. Trump has been expected to visit Denmark on the 2nd and 3rd of September as part of his trip to Europe. But until his tweet on Tuesday, there was no solid indication the visit to Denmark was centered on buying Greenland. Denmark is a very special country with incredible people. But based on Prime Minister Met Frederiksen's comments that she would have no interest in discussing the purchase of Greenland, I will be postponing our meeting scheduled in two weeks for another time, the president wrote. The White House later clarified that the entire trip to Denmark had been scrapped, including a planned meeting with the Queen of Denmark. We'll talk more about um, whether or not it is absurd and what uh, possible motivation there might be for attempting to purchase Greenland. The third president to do so. President Trump acknowledged on Tuesday that he is weighing options to boost the U.S. economy, including a temporary payroll tax cut. However, he also attempted to ease any fears of a looming recession. We're looking at various tax reductions, the president told reporters at the White House on Tuesday. But I'm looking at uh, that all the time anyway. He added, we're very far from a recession. Recession. There's no P in recession. He also continues to press the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates, despite the president's optimism growing in the American economy. Uh, appears to be slowing. The nation's gross domestic product grew at an annualized rate of 2.1% in the second quarter, down from 3.1% growth rate in the prior quarter, according to the July data released by the Commerce Department. And authorities are ramping up the search for two missing firefighters who set out by boat last week from the Florida coast, saying they are in a race against time. Jacksonville Interim Fire Chief Keith Power said the agency was calling for as many boats as could they could muster, Uh, in the ongoing search for Brian McClooney and Justin Walker. The firefighters departed last Friday on their uh, outing aboard a 24-foot vessel from Port um, Canaveral. We are absolutely in a race against time, the U.S. Coast Guard Captain Mark Vlaun said. Officials say that this is still very much a rescue effort. Vlaun called search efforts over the next days critical. The White House pushed back late Tuesday on claims by the National Rifle Association that President Trump had purportedly said universal background checks were off the table with ongoing push for legislative action following two recent deadly mass shootings. Earlier in the day, The Atlantic published an article saying Trump had opted against expanding federal background checks, citing a person briefed on the call. But a White House official told Fox News that meanwhile, new background checks remain a legislative option and denied that Trump said he supported universal background checks. In a post on the NRA Twitter account on Tuesday, the organization's CEO and executive president, Wayne LaPierre, did not disclose the substance of his call with President Trump. Pamela Anderson. Well, I'm not even going to go into that. We we'll don't need to talk about Pamela Anderson. The anti-gun group March for Our Lives has introduced a peace plan for a safer America, which the Washington Post explains goes much further. In the current debate over universal background checks and red flag laws, in fact, the peace plan would create a national licensing and gun registry, long and non-starter with gun rights advocates, ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, implement a mandatory gun buyback program, and install a national director of gun violence prevention who would report directly to the president and coordinate the federal response to what advocates uh, call a national public health emergency. NRA spokeswoman Amy Hunter uh, responded saying the gun control community is finally being marginally honest about their true wish list. The simple fact remains their proposals and ideas are out of the mainstream and most people will understand their real intent goes beyond what they uh, they publicly state. Well, uh, we will see the new United States Space Command will officially be up and running by the end of this month. Vice President Mike Pence said yesterday at a meeting at the National Space Council the U.S. Space Command will be the military's unified combatant command in charge of the country's defense operations in space. It will become the Defense Department's 11th unified combatant command alongside the U.S. Strategic Command, the U.S. Special Operations Command and other commands that serve specific functions or geographic regions. The president acknowledged his aggressive China trade policies may mean economic pain for Americans, but insisted they're needed For more important long-term benefits, he contended he does not fear a recession but is nonetheless considering new tax cuts to promote growth. The Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez plans to hold a party fundraising event with the American expatriate community in Mexico City next month. The registration form on the DNC website required that attendees be U.S. citizens or permanent residents and enter passport or green card numbers. It's illegal for foreigners to contribute to American political campaigns. Hence, the information. Well, Facebook is launching a long promise tool that lets you limit what the social network can gather about you on outside websites and apps. The company said Tuesday that it is adding a section where you can see the activity that Facebook tracks outside its services via its like buttons and other means. You can choose to turn off the tracking. Otherwise, tracking will continue the same way it has been. And Iceland held a funeral for the first glacier lost to climate change. On this day in history, in 1609, Galileo demonstrates his new telescope to a group of officials atop a um, hill in Venice. On this day in 1831, Nat Turner launches a violent slave rebellion in Virginia. And on this day in 1858, the Lincoln-Douglas debates began between Illinois senatorial candidate rivals Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, and Stephen A. Douglas, a Democrat. They were much more civil back then. And on this day in 1959, Hawaii becomes the 50th state in the United States. On this day in 1995, ABC News settles a $10 billion libel suit by apologizing to Philip Morris for reporting the tobacco giant had manipulated the amount of nicotine in its cigarettes. And finally, on this day in 2000, rescue efforts to reach the sunken Russian nuclear submarine Kursk. And with divers announcing none of the 118 sailors had survived. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A U.S. military MQ 9 drone was shot down in Yemen. A U.S. official confirmed uh, today. Now, we don't think a lot about Yemen because it's not talked about, but we're still. Uh, doing work there. The drone was shot down late on Tuesday in Yemen's, um, a Dahmer governor um, governorate southeast of the Houthi controlled capital of Sana'a, according to officials which first reported the news. Yemen's Houthi rebels claimed responsibility for the shooting down, saying in a statement that their air defense downed the MQ-9 drone with a missile. The U.S. military central command later said in a statement that it was investigating the Houthi claims that they had attacked an unmanned U.S. drone operating in authorized airspace over Yemen. Uh, We have been clear that Iran's provocative actions in support of two militants and proxies like the Iranian-backed Houthis poses a serious threat to stability in the region and our partners, U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Earl Brown of CENTCOM, uh, said in a statement that was not the first time Houthi rebels have shot down a U.S. drone in Yemen. In June, officials uh, say that the U.S.-operated MQ-9 drone was shot down by the Iranian-backed rebels. The conflict in Yemen began in the, in the uh, with the 2014 takeover of Sana'a by the Houthis, who drove out the internationally recognized government. In March of 2015, the coalition launched an air campaign to prevent the rebels from overrunning the South. Also on Wednesday, Human Rights Watch said the Saudi-led coalition carried out at least Five deadly attacks on Yemeni fishing boats in 2018, killing at least 47 Yemeni fishermen, including seven children. Well, the shooting of the drone comes amid a growing confrontation between Iran and the West over the president's pulled Washington, a nuclear deal or the, the decision to pull you the United States out of the deal uh, with world powers. Um, that was made under the previous administration years ago. It also comes after a diplomatic spat between the two countries over an Iranian supertanker carrying one hundred and thirty million dollars worth of light crude oil. The United States suspects was transporting the oil to fuel the Iranian regime and Syrian regime's campaigns of terror and oppression. U.S. officials sought to seize the Iran flag to Adrian Darya. Uh, previously named Grace One after the vessel left Gibraltar, uh, Gibraltar rather, late Sunday after being detained for a month for allegedly attempting to uh, breach European Union sanctions on Syria. Authorities there, however, rejected those attempts by the U.S. to seize the tanker, arguing the EU regulations are less strict than U.S. sanctions on Iraq. Iran has repeatedly denied supplying the Houthis with drones or missile technology, both of which the rebels have increasingly used, including to Saudi Arabia, to target Saudi Arabia. The kingdom has claimed that Iran supplied the missiles or at least helped the Houthis manufacture them from parts that were in Yemen before the war. And despite being driven from its former Iraq and Syria strongholds six months ago, ISIS continues to find ways to wreak havoc across the Middle East, uh, remaining in, in uh, uh, a, a, a threat, uh, if less strategically successful, terror force. Well, according to a new report, uh, the post-caliphate terror threat in Europe and the need to for continuing U.S. assistance um, uh, exists. ISIS territorial defeat can be directly equated with a decline in attacks, but the author also notes the threat landscape has changed. America's strategy has worked. It took uh, almost four and a half years, but the Islamic State's self-proclaimed caliphate in Syria and Iraq has been dismantled, yet the threat from ISIS is far from over, the reports uh, went on to say, authored by Rob Simcox, uh, a foreign policy fellow, increased focus on Uh, is now being placed instead on the danger that ISIS is likely to pose as an insurgency. The total number of attacks on European soil has declined since 2014, the year ISIS emerged and undertook a stunning campaign that won its large swaths of territory across Iraq and Syria. In 2014, Europe was targeted uh, with 61 Islamist attacks and plots, the number rising to 44 in 2015 and then to 84 in 2016. The height of ISIS influence before major efforts were undertaken by numerous world powers to force the terrorists from their operations base. In 2017, the attacks in Europe decreased slightly to 78 attacks and plots, followed by 41 in 2018, and so far in 2019, just 16. Well, the report credits improved intelligence sharing and the destruction of the so-called caliphate for disrupting the group's ability to consistently export terror to Europe. Removing ISIS from its caliphate appears to have had positive consequences for European security. As of mid June 2019, there has not been a major coordinated attack in Europe since the fall of 2017. However, more unsophisticated Islamist operations continue with 21 injured, three killed in four separate attacks so far this year, the report says. Yet there was evidence that terrorists and terror Uh, Suspects were getting even more creative with their European plots in 2018, and the threat picture was growing more diverse. The report underscores the three chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear terror plots in Europe in 2018, despite none in the previous four years. All involved ricin, and one plot also involved anthrax. Also, striking was an, uh, an arrest made in the UK in the summer of 2018 to prevent an alleged plan to deploy drones as part of a broader Islamist plot. Another unusual plot saw multiple attempts to derail trains in Germany. An Iraqi refugee and his associates were suspected of placing steel ropes and cement blocks on train lines carrying high-speed trains. The post-caliphate terror threat also acknowledges, and that's the title of the report, also acknowledges that several hundred fighters who fled Europe to join ISIS during its bloody reign were never caught, and as the caliphate began to collapse, smugglers transported ISIS fighters, uh, both foreign and local, uh, and their families to Turkey, where they were ordered to lie low. Uh, some chose to enter or reenter Europe, exploiting uh, well-traveled migrant routes, the report states, noting that European security officials have speculated that a host of other countries, ranging from Afghanistan to the Maldives, Uh, Could serve as potential bases where foreign fighters can lie low after the loss of the caliphate. Well, Simcox also stressed the importance of the U.S. remaining deeply engaged in the counterterrorism effort and working closely with European partners to stay on top of the emerging threats. But Simcox cautioned the U.S. should also certainly not be making public proclamations of defeating ISIS, which is a very premature statement and only invites complacency. As for Europe, there's still a lot of work ahead, according to that same. Report. Well, Tokyo's defense chiefs are warning that North Korea's capabilities and new white paper have increased. The assessment of Pyongyang's nuclear tech is an upgrade from last year. South Korea and the United States also believe the North has uh, been uh, miniaturizing its warheads. Well, North Korea has um, nuclear warheads, and they've been miniaturized and made them small enough to fit on ballistic missiles, Japan believes. Tokyo defense chiefs warn in a new white paper that North Korean military activities pose serious and imminent threats. In uh, late last year's reports, Japan said it was possible that North Korea had achieved miniaturization, but Tokyo now appears to have upgraded its assessment, according to the Japanese newspaper. Japan is seen as a primary target of Nearby North Korea's weapons capabilities and fears that Pyongyang's nuclear program is growing unabated, experts say. The latest findings come alongside newly released uh, pictures, which suggest a North Korean plant may be leaking hazardous waste into a nearby river, which, of course, poses a, a threat to all in the region. The Japanese report highlights the lack of progress in denuclearization talks. Um, a nuclear affairs expert at MIT emphasizes it is Japan that is most threatened and probably the primary target of such a capability. So openly acknowledging it underscores Tokyo's acute fears that North Korea's nuclear program continues to grow unabated with no foreseeable plan to slow its growth, let alone eliminate them altogether. The report is due to be approved at a cabinet meeting in Japan in mid-September. In last year's defense white paper, Japan said miniaturizing a nuclear weapon Small enough to be mounted on a ballistic missile requires a considerably high degree of technological capacity. However, they said it is possible that North Korea has achieved the miniaturization of nuclear weapons and has developed nuclear warheads. Japan's latest findings are similar to those of its allies, America and South Korea. The South said in 2018 defense paper that North Korea's ability to miniaturize nuclear weapons appears to have reached a considerable level. American officials have concluded for years that North Korea had likely produced miniaturized uh, nuclear heads. South Korean intelligence bosses believe that the North continues to miniaturize nuclear warheads even after the Singapore summit between Trump and Kim in June of 2018, according to Korean media. And President Trump confirmed the White House would consider further tax cuts in an attempt to boost the economy, even as he continued to downplay growing concerns about a recession. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick reminder, we'll be talking with Adam Michelle in the five o'clock hour. We'll talk about the Green New Deal, the tuition free college, the federal, uh, 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 I should say, the socialist health care. Um, that is being proposed as solutions to our problems, but how to pay for them and who's likely to foot the bill. That'll be the subject of our conversation. We'll also hear from Don Everts, the reluctant witness.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Thirty four minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump confirmed yesterday the White House would consider further tax cuts in an attempt to boost the economy. The other thing is uh, we're looking at various tax reductions, the president told reporters in the Oval Office. This is yesterday. That's one of the reasons we're in such a strong economic position. We're right now the number one country anywhere in the world by far as are uh, uh, As an economy. Well, set, the president said payroll tax cuts were under considerations, confirming a Washington Post story that the White House officials had disputed a day before House uh, rather hours earlier. The White House spokesman Hogan Gidley. Uh, said that payroll tax cuts were not on the table. The president also suggested a proposal to lower taxes on capital gains through executive action, bypassing Congress in a move that would likely face legal challenges. We've been talking about indexing for a long time, the president said. Many people like indexing. It can be done very simply. It can be done directly by me. I would love to do something on capital gains, end quote. Well, the call for tax cuts came after a key recession warning flashed on Wednesday for the first time since before the global financial Crisis in June of 2007. The president was briefed on the economy by top Wall Street executives that afternoon after financial markets turned sharply lower. With weakening growth abroad and escalating tensions between the U.S. and major trading partners, investors, and economists, they've grown increasingly concerned about the prospect of a slowdown in recent months. Well, the Trump administration plans to expand the scope of its tariffs on China in September in a major escalation that would hit far more consumer products than in previous moves and could hurt retail spending, which has remained one of the brightest spots in the otherwise slowing economy. The White House appeared to acknowledge that tariffs could hurt American consumers last week, uh, delaying some of them until after the holiday shopping season. Proposals to uh, Juice, in quotes, the economy, have emerged following sharp backlash over trade disputes from companies and lawmakers. Earlier this month, Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida suggested short-term pain from tariffs should be countered with tax cuts. Anything we raise in tariffs, we should give back to the rank uh, and file public in a tax reduction. The Federal Reserve slashed interest rates last month by a quarter percentage point, but the administration officials have called for more aggressive easing. And the administration is moving to close what is uh, called a loophole that stymied enforcement of immigration laws in a change that would allow detention of illegal immigrant minors for longer than the current 20 days in order to keep them with their parents. The Department of Homeland Security will seek to terminate the so-called Flores Settlement Agreement through executive action and replace it with a new policy that allows longer detention times in order to avoid either separating families or releasing illegal immigrants into the interior of the country. That settlement created the loopholes that result in families of illegal immigrants being released into the country after just 20 days. The administration said the new rule will ensure alien children are safe, secure and well cared for while in custody. Family units and unaccompanied minors have been the largest segment of illegal immigrants over the past year. The president has asked asked Congress to take action on the matter to protect these children from abuse and stop this illegal flow. We must close the loopholes, he's argued. This is an urgent humanitarian necessity. Court rulings have expanded the Flores Agreement, which... Has complicated border enforcement efforts. Still, the administration contends it's fulfilling the purpose of the agreement, which is to ensure children in the government custody, the government's custody, are treated with special concern. The uh, settlement was first adjudicated in 1997, but was uh, interpreted in 2015 to require the Department of Homeland Security to release from its custody all migrant children even if they were with their parents. The result is that when adults cross the border with a child, DHS is required to release the child within 20 days. Now, this is the more contemporary interpretation that was not the interpretation when it was first adjudicated in 97. Since the parents broke the law by crossing the border illegally, the government seeks to detain and prosecute them after their asylum claims are completed. However, that usually takes more than 20 days, so DHS has to release the children, leaving the government with the choice of detaining the parents or releasing the entire family. In July of 2018, with the end of a zero-tolerance policy, DHS shifted to simply releasing anyone accompanied by a child in order to comply with the Flores versus Reno. And that, of course, encouraged those who would pretend to be associated with children and to exploit the system. Under the rule change, some illegal immigrant families may be detained longer than 20 days, but the administration asserts that apprehension, processing, care, custody, and release of juveniles will be done with higher standards. James Carafano, Vice President of National Security and Foreign Policy Foundation, and Mike Howell, Senior Advisor for the executive branch relations at the think tank um, uh, support the, the uh, move saying in a joint statement, Uh, For years, Congress failed to close a gaping loophole in the immigration system that's contributed significantly to the security and humanitarian crisis on our southern border. The U.S. should not have to choose between enforcing our immigration laws and keeping families together. Terminating the Flores settlement agreement will ensure that more illegal border crossers will be processed through the legal system instead of simply being released into the country. This will defer future smuggling operations, weaken the incentives to exploit children for the purpose of gaining access into the country – The Flores settlement agreement, which was responsible for many family separations, was the result of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals judicial activism. The rule has been weaponized to create chaos and overload our immigration court system and detention facilities. Abandoning Flores is a vital step in restoring the rule of law and moving toward an immigration system that once again works for all Americans. Smugglers have used the loophole created by this settlement as a selling point for illegal immigrants who want to cross the border and be released into the interior of the country. In some cases, smugglers bring in fake families or illegal immigrants bringing children who aren't their own for the sake of getting released. The White House is arguing more than four hundred and thirty thousand family units um, have been apprehended at the southern border in fiscal year twenty nineteen thus far, which began last October. Uh, more family units uh, were apprehended at the southern border in the past three months, one hundred and eighty four thousand than in all of fiscal year twenty eighteen, according to the White House. In twenty thirteen, the number of families apprehended was fourteen thousand. So it's significant, significantly higher than what had been the case um, before. Well, President Trump, you might recall, defended his uh, decision to postpone a scheduled trip to Denmark over the Danish prime minister's blanket refusal to even discuss the possible sale of Greenland. Well, in remarks outside the White House, the president said that he felt the prime minister was nasty in calling his proposal absurd and said that he postponed the visit because you don't talk to the United States that way sort of the pot calling the kettle black. Last night, CNN's Don Lemon said this president wants to convince you that Uh, He is a tough guy, so he is picking a fight with Greenland. Well, um, Tammy Bruce, uh, who is an expert in this area, said that uh, this reaction is an example of what the media gets wrong about the president. She says, what has struck me in this entire process is the fact that they have been mocking him for this uh, and that the idea of offering to buy or being interested in buying Greenland is somehow some kind of weird idea Once again, the president being underestimated. Well, for most people who don't have any context at all, it just sounds like a weird idea. Now, the media uh, doing its job is supposed to provide some context so that people can decide for themselves whether or not it's a weird idea. Uh, Bruce believes that the president's proposal is an indication not just of the fact that the United States can think expansively again, but it's telling you about the importance of leadership. She pointed out that the United States is not the only nation that's expressed interest in Greenland. In June, a Chinese state-owned company reportedly withdrew its efforts to build airports in Greenland. And by the way, the concern is that China is going to... Uh, take advantage of the resources that are there. This is about the freedom of the world and the nature of who is going to have at least some kind of control over the nature of the Western world. You didn't hear about that in this conversation, Bruce said. Of course, you didn't hear about it from the president either. So the media may not have done their job, but the president didn't do his job in convincing the American people either. Now, in all fairness, this was a leaked memo. Apparently, this was a conversation that was supposed to be uh, privately held. But nonetheless, Uh, She stressed that Greenland is rich in natural resources. They have iron ore, they have lead, they have zinc, diamonds, uranium, oil, but also rare earth elements. Uh, We rely on China for these, interestingly enough, and that has been an understated threat by China in the trade negotiations. So the concern was much broader than just expanding the border of uh, uh, the United States, but these other issues. So given a bit of the background, perhaps you can decide for yourself how... um, Uh, how stupid the idea might have been or not. Well, president Trump signed an executive order on Wednesday that forgives all student loan debt for any permanently disabled us military veterans to order which uh, the president signed um, following a speech at the American veterans national convention in Louisville, Kentucky uh, also clears those uh, eligible veterans from having to pay any federal income tax on the loans. President added that he is uh, pressuring individual States to follow suit The debt of these disabled veterans will be completely erased, the president said. That's hundreds of millions of dollars of student loan debt for our disabled veterans that will be completely erased. The memo the president signed directs the government to develop an expedited process so veterans can have their federal student loan debt discharged with minimum burdens. Currently, just half of the roughly 50,000 disabled veterans who are qualified to have their federal student loan debt forgiven have received the benefit because of a burdensome application process. Under the current process, disabled veterans can have their debt forgiven under a loan forgiveness program called Total and Permanent Disability Discharge, or TPD, as long as they have a VA service-connected disability rating of 100%. As of July, only about 20 percent of the eligible pool of veterans have taken advantage of the program due to the complicated nature of the application and other factors. The president's announcement comes days after the administration hired a longtime student loan industry executive to be federal government's top watchdog for the student loan market. Robert uh, Carmen, rather, will serve as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's new student loan ombudsman, the bureau said on Friday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk about who's going to pay for the Green New Deal, um, tuition free college, socialist health care with Adam Michelle. We're also going to uh, reprise a conversation with Don Everts, author of The Reluctant Witness, discovering the delight of spiritual conversations. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. YouTube. YouTube is stepping up efforts to tackle hate speech and says it's going to ban videos claiming that any group is superior to others to justify discrimination and segregation. Americans are reportedly changing their perception of what they consider too expensive when it comes to buy gas, and YouTube's going to cover it all. Well, after. It was slapped with a reported million-dollar fine. YouTube has plans to end children's targeted ads on certain videos targeting youngsters in order to comply with the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, The move comes uh, with a continuing violation of the Children's Online Privacy Act, or COPPA, uh, uploading specific ads aimed at kids that are placed in videos for a young crowd. Sources um, uh, uh, speaking to Bloomberg claimed... Uh, YouTube's been taking advantage of young uh, viewers, rather. Well, the news comes after reports by The Washington Post that the FTC has started investigating the online video streaming company over complaints that they're not protecting underage users of their product. Uh, These initial complaints include the alleged improper data collection from kid viewers. The FTC has uh, reached a settlement with Google-owned companies that include an estimated multi-million dollar fine for the kid-related violations, according to Bloomberg, which also reports that the news may have uh, an adverse impact on the current ad sales for the media giant. In other words, kids go on YouTube to watch kid-approved and appropriate Uh, programming and find that there are ads placed there that are designed to appeal to kids who, of course, don't have jobs. And you get the idea. Well, targeted ads rely on collecting information on the viewer and doing so on viewers under the age of 13 without parental permission places YouTube in violation of COPPA regulations, according to reports. Well, the News of YouTube's ad strategy comes with uh, controversies over the way the company has addressed young viewers. You might recall earlier this year, YouTube announced that it would uh, be removing the comments on nearly all videos featuring children in an effort to protect kids from pedophiles and inappropriate comments made on videos published on its platform. Well, the terms of the agreement between the FTC and YouTube have not been officially released, but this is designed to ultimately hold them accountable to the regulations that are already in place. And to make sure that children are once again protected. Former uh, GOP Senator John Kyle was uh, tapped by Facebook to conduct a Robert Mueller-like investigation into accusations of the company's bias against conservatives. Kyle publicly released his findings on Tuesday in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. He wrote, and I'm quoting, "'Facebook placed no restrictions on how I could conduct the work.'" My team at the law firm of Covington and Burling LLP began conducting, conducting interviews in May of 2018. We cast a wide net to include as many aspects of conservatism as possible from organizations focused on Christian values or protecting free expression of those focused on tax policy and small government. We identified individuals, groups, and lawmakers who either use, study, or could potentially regulate Facebook and interviewed 133 of them. To encourage them to speak freely, we told interviewees we wouldn't publish their identities We presented our preliminary findings to Facebook in early August of 2018 and have been discussing them with the company ever since. Well, a year later, that's end quote, a year later, we now know that Kyle found conservatives concerns generally fall within the following six buckets, content distribution and algorithms, content policies, content enforcements, ad policies, ad enforcement, workforce uh, viewpoint diversity. Well, they've addressed uh, many of these uh, concerns in the past, and we won't rehash it all here, they went on to write, but the short of it is that Facebook certainly seems to discriminate against conservative viewpoints in each of these buckets. Again, those buckets are um, algorithms, uh, content policies, content enforcement, ad policies, ad enforcement, workforce viewpoint, diversity. Kyle says Facebook has made several changes that are responsive to our findings, and we understand more are being considered. Those changes include things like an oversight board for content removal appeals, explanations and transparency for algorithms, four more staff to deal with complaints, and add policy changes that would effectively allow for more pro life content. Well, two things. First, Kyle obviously. Uh, wants to show that he was effective, so winning some concessions from Facebook is a feather in his cap. Secondly, Facebook has a vested interest in the appearance of fairness. Axios, which first reported the findings, sums up the view of the topic, or the, at least the optics of it, how it all looks. Uh, While there has been little evidence that Facebook is knowingly biased against conservatives, the release of the audit and further continuation of it shows that company takes the the allegations seriously. Not that it matters to conservatives, Axios gripes. Accusations of political bias against Facebook and big tech have become a political weapon wielded by conservatives. It is doubtful an audit will stop that effort, end quote. Hmm. Well, conservatives didn't make this a political weapon. Facebook did by um, its proven biased standards. Axios Cavalier dismissal of little evidence notwithstanding. And uh, there's little reason to believe that Facebook's response to the Audit, even by a Republican, for the smoke and mirrors purpose of objectivity is anything but window dressing. In that sense, Axio is right, and as uh, Kyle put it, conservatives no doubt will and should continue to press Facebook to address the concerns that arose in the survey. Remember, Facebook claims to be a platform for users to express opinions. Freely, but it behaves like a publisher in choosing what content is acceptable. Having it both ways is not conducive to free speech. Later in the program, we're going to talk about Prager U and how they have been censored by YouTube. You couldn't get much more innocuous than Prager U. Um, They have been uh, heavily censored, and much of what they are producing has been considered inappropriate for uh, and only appropriate for mature audiences. Now, this is ideological viewpoint discrimination, uh, given the fact that these are general topics that are intended to inform a, a general audience that would include young people as well as those more, in quotes, mature. We'll talk more about that uh, later in the uh, in the program. Well, as you may recall, the Trump administration has reinstated tough regulations from the Reagan era that prohibit family planning clinics receiving federal funding under Title X from promoting abortions. Well, after losing several preliminary cases in the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, Planned Parenthood announced earlier this week that it was withdrawing from the Title X program if it could not use those tax dollars to promote abortion. That's great news. You couldn't help but notice the irony, however. Throughout this debate, Planned Parenthood has claimed that that if it... um, is denied Title X funding, women's health care services would suffer, and Planned Parenthood insists that providing health care services is the main reason that it exists. Obviously, that was not true, as Planned Parenthood voluntarily withdrew from the program in order to maintain its abortion practice. Once it lost the fight to block the administration's rule, Planned Parenthood exposed its real priority. It will not in any way compromise its ability to destroy innocent unborn children. It would rather give up millions of dollars than abort one less baby or one fewer um, and let's be clear about it. The government has no money that it um, doesn't get from taxpayers. That's you. So Planned Parenthood is no longer using your money conduct- to conduct a jihad, as one commentator put it, against defenseless, unborn or preborn children, and that's a good thing. In reality, Planned Parenthood is uh, two things the biggest abortion mill in the country and one of the most powerful political action committees in the country. You can bet it will be out in full force in 2020, working overtime to defeat the pro life Trump Pence ticket and to regain its Title X taxpayer money that they are not going to get at this point. Finally, Michigan State University instructed student employees to avoid using words and phrases, including but, just not the, uh, not using the phrase, I apologize and no problem. I wouldn't mind getting rid of no problem, but uh, because apparently they're triggers. The students received this uh, instruction during a mandatory hour-long training titled Inclusive and Culturally Sensitive Service to Residents and Guests in August, according to an article in Campus Reform. The training told uh, students that they should replace the apparent triggers with calmers, for example, but should be replaced with and, I apologize should be replaced with I am truly sorry, and no problem should be replaced with you're welcome, it was my pleasure. I feel triggered just talking about it. News and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, David Burton, who is a senior fellow in economic policy at the Heritage Foundation, has done a little, well, math. And he's determined that it's impossible to pay for progressive promises by taxing the rich. The promises are too expensive, and the amount of income earned by the rich is too small. Even using lower cost estimates, confiscating every dollar earned by every taxpayer with incomes of $200,000 or more, would only pay for about half of the progressive agenda. And that figure is based on the false assumption that people would continue to work, save, and invest when subject to a 100% flat tax. Well, here to talk with us about whether or not it's possible to pay for the promises that we are um, being uh, told can be ours if only we elect one of the uh, Democratic uh, candidates, free college, Green New Deal, socialist health care. Adam Michelle is a senior policy analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget part of the Heritage Foundation. Hey, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
2: You know, these things all sound great. Free college, Green New Deal, socialist health care, Medicare for all, Uh, until you start thinking about how it's going to be paid for. And if if the promise is made that other people are going to do it, well, why would you oppose it? But when you do the math, it doesn't quite add up. Tell us.
3: That's exactly right. Uh, As you said, it It is impossible to fund the uh, close to $100 trillion agenda of the progressive left. Uh, That is, if you add up a Medicare for all, free college, paid family leave, these things start becoming incredibly costly. And there is no possible way, even if we were to confiscate all of the income from even uh, moderately wealthy people on up, we could pay for, for, for th- this agenda. And so ultimately what that leads us to, to the conclusion of is really what the progressive agenda is, is telling you is that they want to raise taxes on the middle class.
2: But no one is saying that. Uh, and the expectation is no one's going to do the math. Uh,
3: that, that That's correct. They're expecting uh, us not to call them on their inabilities to, to do math. And they're expecting um, uh, the American people to uh, turn a blind eye and just uh, think that we can keep promising new benefits without uh, without ever having to pay for it. I think the reality of what's happening in Europe is is very instructive, where uh, where people, not just the rich, but people making forty thousand dollars a year, are are taxed uh, on about fifty percent of of their total income is is sent to the government and. Uh, and I don't know what, what world uh, what, what world the Democrats are living in, but someone making $40,000 a year shouldn't have to send half of what they make to the government.
2: Mm. Now, even if we were to bleed the rich dry and the middle class had to pick up uh, the balance – um, again, with the assumption that the the rich would be willing to continue to generate wealth that they would not be able to consume themselves. What are we talking about in terms of what the middle class would likely have to pay? Because some people think, well, maybe, you know, a little increase in taxes might not be so bad in exchange for all of the things that we're being promised. But we're not really talking about a small increase in taxes.
3: That, that's exactly right. The, even if we were to levy that 100 percent tax on on people that are, that are wealthy, um, we would still be talking about tax increases on the middle of the class on, the, on somewhere between three and ten times their current level in the United States. It's important to remember that the United States is a relatively low tax country, especially for lower and middle class uh, um, Americans compared to our uh, European allies who have all, uh, many of these programs that we're talking about. Uh, and so there are certainly more taxes that, that, that could be paid, and it would be quite costly for the middle class.
2: Now, of course, there's always the option of unsustainable federal borrowing. We could just borrow the money, enjoy the benefits today, and then our children and grandchildren, of course, would bear the weight of, of that, given the def- the deficit that we're already carrying and some of the other challenges we face. It, that, that's
3: exactly right. The other cost is is, is Deficit spending, uh, which accumulates into our national debt, it's already dragging down economic growth, making it harder for for businesses to invest, making it harder for individuals to invest. That government spending crowds out a lot of private activity, uh, and then whatever is left is is you're exactly correct. Our children will have to pick up the bill, um, and it will be bigger than the bill today because we have to pay interest on on all all of that accumulated uh, debt, which. Uh, right now, interest rates are low, but uh, that certainly cannot go on forever.
2: Now, there seems to be some evidence that some of the 2020 candidates are backpedaling a bit on Medicare for all. Is that what you are are seeing is the reality of what people actually want and the cost of imposing this kind of a health care system? I, I noted that even Harry Reid emerged from his... Uh, uh, absence to comment about how unrise it was for the party to move in that direction.
3: If you, if you look at the, the candidates on the left, uh, whether or not they call it Medicare for All or they call it a single payer, uh, all of these things are incredibly expensive. And what none of their plans do are introduce uh, market forces, competition, uh, putting the consumer of the healthcare services, you and I, uh, back in the driver's seat, which is really the only uh, sort of range of solutions that can actually drive down cost. Instead, all of their solutions just throw more money onto the fire of, of healthcare spending, which will only increase in, uh, healthcare inflation, make it even more costly than it already is, and, uh, and certainly not any easier to access.
2: Now, this is a message that we're not hearing, uh, certainly uh, in the mainstream media, what the actual cost would be. And candidates, when pressed for that kind of information, are very vague about it. Are you confident that at some point um, this message is going to um, get out so that people can actually calculate the cost of the promises that are being made? (laughs) I certainly hope
3: so. As, as the candidates develop more concrete plans, there will certainly be a better, will have a better ability to call them on, on their bluff. But Medicare for All, for example, there's a cost estimate out there. I think it's $32 trillion dollars over 10 years to fund the the medicare for all plan that's uh that, that's just one piece of of the all the spending agenda that it's uh adding up and uh and and the american people should be ready to pay for that if that's what they vote for
2: well it's interesting to me that the media seems to be much more politicized than one would expect from journalists in quotes uh, so the message and the challenge is not being um uh, uh, put out there and that's a disservice to the american people who I think are genuinely want to know, you know, what what's going to be the cost, not only to me but to future generations, um, and that's just not happening.
3: You're, you're right. There's think in the across the media. There's this Trump derangement syndrome where it's all all about uh, all about uh, uh, him against them, and there's not a lot of substance in any of the reporting. It's all about personality and and who who's scoring points when, and that's a that's really a shame because this election really comes down to uh, to, pol- to policy differences. Do we want to expand the scope of government so that they're directing more than half of the economic resources in this country like they do in Europe? Or do we want a country that uh, thrives on uh, deregulation, on lower taxes, on government being less involved in your life? And that's that's ultimately the choice that, that faces the American people. And we should be we should be having uh, significant and deep conversations about it.
2: Absolutely. Well, I would encourage our listeners once again to go to Heritage.org and find David Burton's piece, a Senior Fellow in Economic Policy on this very subject. Uh, it's a, about a 20-page when printed uh, report, so it's worth reading if you'd like to take a serious uh, look at the cost of what's being suggested. Uh, Adam Michelle, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Again, Adam Michelle is Senior Policy Analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to share a conversation I had with Don Everts. He's the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. That's coming up next on The Georg- Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Don Everts, grew up, well, he assumed that spiritual conversations are always painful and awkward, but his surprising and sometimes embarrassing stories affirm what scripture and the latest research tell us that spiritual conversations can actually be a delight. With original research from the Barna Group on spiritual conversations in the digital age, his book offers fresh insight and best practices on how to become eager conversationalists. The book is titled The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. And I know some of you are already skeptical. Yeah, right. We call them spiritual conversations now. It was witnessing before. Are we talking about the same thing? We'll uh, discuss it all with Don Everts. He is, a reluctant, is reluctant rather to call himself an evangelist. But for decades, he's found himself talking about Jesus with all sorts of skeptical and curious people. He is a writer for Lutheran Hour Ministries and associate pastor of Bonholm Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. He has also been a speaker and a trainer for Alpha and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His many books include Jesus with Dirty Feet, I Once Was Lost, and Breaking the Huddle. He joins us today to talk about the latest, The Reluctant Witness Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Well, thanks for having me, Georgine. I look forward to it.
2: Yeah. Well, spiritual conversation. Now, is that the 21st century way of of uh, replacing the word witnessing, which so often strikes fear in the hearts of those who are called to do so? Well, yes and no. Uh,
4: I, I agree that evangelism, the E word, uh, and even witness, <laughs> the W word, uh, can be daunting because of some of what we've seen happen uh, in the name of evangelism. Mm-hmm. Or uh, but, for the sake of the book and even the uh, the research that we did, spiritual conversations was broader, so uh, it was defined as any conversation you have with anyone about your faith or your lack of faith and so that could be that that is inclusive of witnessing conversations, but it also includes you know talking with your spouse on the way home from church. what do you think of the sermon? Uh, it also includes sitting in your household and talking with your kids about. Uh, you know, the, the Bible lesson you read together. Uh, so it's a broader term, uh, which, which is actually kind of sobering because part of what the research showed us uh, is that Christians aren't just witnessing less, uh, but they're having fewer spiritual conversations uh, of any kind.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, this um, is uh, largely informed. Your book is largely informed by research that uh, uh, that Barna has done along with uh, Lutheran Hour Ministries. It's not the first time Lutheran Hour Ministries has done a survey. 25 years ago, they did similar uh, study that uh, revealed to us how people are engaging in these kinds of conversations. But talk a little bit about the, the work that was most recently done and how that helps us better understand where we stand in our culture, as well as um, moving us forward in terms of how to engage in these kinds of conversations.
4: Yeah, great. So uh, Lutheran Hour and Barna, they had, as you mentioned, they did a study 25 years ago. Uh, and then in 2018, they did a nationwide uh, survey, qualitative, quantitative, all these really, really smart people at Barna <laughs> who know how to do this. Uh, to, to, to find out kind of what's the state of our spiritual conversations. And there was really uh, sobering findings uh, <laughs> that really caught us up short. And there were really hopeful findings as well that, that, that gave us great hope for uh, for the cause of the kingdom of God in our own time. So uh, let me give you an example, Georgine. Mm-hmm. One of the really sobering findings uh, was that 89 percent, or no, pardon me, pardon me. Three-quarters, so three-quarters of all Christians in the United States have nine or fewer spiritual conversations every year. And remember, I'm not talking about uh, witnessing conversations where a Christian is, uh, you know, summarizing the gospel for a non-Christian. Any spiritual conversation with anyone at all, nine or fewer a year, that's three-quarters of all Christians. That's stunning Mm -hmm. uh, to me. That really surprised us that we we just aren't talking about our faith in ways that we used to, uh, we also found out that when we do talk about our faith, particularly with non-Christians, we bring up the Bible less, we bring up the benefits of being a follower of Jesus less, uh, and we bring up other people's beliefs and how they interact with the truths of the of the gospel less. So the, the, it's sobering, Georgine. Uh, the, in, in a way, the cat's got our tongue, and that became a focus of the research. Why have we grown silent? Why have we lost our voice? Um, and, and what hopeful uh, findings are there as well? But th- that gives you an example of some of the kinds of things that we were learning.
2: Yeah, it really is um, is fascinating. You begin in the introduction um, of your book, *The Reluctant Witness*, with a story when you were uh, an intern uh, about a, a, a trip on an airplane in which you were reading a book on evangelism and your experience in just wrestling with whether or not you should engage in conversation with a person you were seated next to. Can you recall that for our listeners? Oh, yeah. I wish it was an airplane.
4: It was actually a bus. A It was was, was a a much longer. (laughs) It was a 15-hour bus ride. And, and you know, the sad truth is for 13 and a half hours, I didn't say a word to the person in the, in the seat right next to me. You know, our shoulders and elbows were touched from time to time, but I never talked. And that whole while I was, it's true, I was reading a book about evangelism, about how much our God loves people and wants to reach out to people and how he calls us to be a part of that work with him. And, after thir- and, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert. Uh, I, I am a reluctant witness. And, um, but even, af- even me, after 13 and a half hours, just the irony of that and the, you know, reading from the Bible and, and, and from this evangelism book I was reading about how joyful it is to, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news while I'm ignoring the person next to me. And after 13 and a half hours, I, I, I just, I, it was too much. And I just turned, I was convicted, and I just, and I said hi <laughs> after 13 and a half hours. And, and, you know, and incredible things actually transpired over the next hour and a half in the conversation. But that story has really, it, it has reminded me uh, of a couple things. One, that God really is into people, and he really does call us to interact with them. And if we just turn and say hi, you never know what might happen. And the the other thing it really encourages me of is if if God can take someone like me, you know, so reluctant, so shy, so hesitant to talk, and he can bring me to a place where I've been able to talk with people about everyday things and also about the faith, then there's hope for anyone.
2: Mm. I think there might be something of a misunderstanding about what Uh, what we are called to, you know, bringing good news. It's not a one-sided conversation in which in the space of three to five minutes, you've given the four spiritual laws, you've given your entire testimony, and then press them to make some kind of decision. I love the idea of a spiritual conversation in which you engage someone. It's a two-way conversation. And in the natural course of things, because your faith is your life, it becomes a part of that conversation.
4: That's right, Georgine. And, uh, you know, one of the hopeful findings, and, and which really backs up what you just said, is so three quarters of us are not talking about our faith much at all, mm-hmm. maybe once every month and a half. But a quarter of all Christians, and this is part of the hopeful thing, are, are having lots of spiritual conversation. And, and the, the data folks took those quarter of the respondents, quarter of all Christians, And they kind of broke down the data, you know, is there anything unique about those folks that maybe can help us learn how we can all become eager conversationalists like them? And one of the indications in the findings was that they are open to kind of graciously adapting to where their conversation partner is, what their spiritual posture is. In other words, they don't have they are less likely to have like a memorized gospel summary. And every time they're in a conversation with a non-Christian, they kind of puke out that summary, you know, (laughs) whether it's awkward, whether it fits in the conversation or not. Uh, Reluctant conversationalists are actually more likely to do that, which may tell us why they don't have many conversations, because they think that's what it means. Eager conversationalists, the Christians among us who are having lots of spiritual conversations, uh they they really they adapt to where their conversation partner is and they're open to see what God does. They're not trying to force it. They're they, they um are really responsive uh to, to where their conversation partner is and, and that that is really hopeful and I think encouraging for the rest of us that we can kind of it breaks down some of these myths of what evangelism really is. And, you know, I have to summarize the gospel, that has to be the first word out of my mouth and I have to force them to, you know, accept it. Well, no, nothing like that. In fact, the folks who are having fruitful, regular, joyful conversations are, they're just starting up a trailhead of a conversation to see where God may take it.
2: Well, and that that tells me you don't have to have a scorecard in your pocket or your purse. You know, I've, I've said everything I needed to say, I can move on.
4: <laughs> That's right. That's right. We used to have that, you know, oh, I shared the gospel with someone. Have you shared the gospel with anyone? You know, like we put these notches on our belt. And, and particularly these days where there's so much distrust in our culture for Christians, Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, et cetera, you know, one of the – I think we need a new notch is on our belt. Uh, and namely, I built trust with a non-Christian today. Mm. You know, I engendered trust. I gained a hearing. I built a bridge. Uh, because part of what the data tells us, you, you want to know uh, – so non-Christians, who they want to talk with about faith matters? It's not religious professionals like me. <laughs> <laughs> It's their friends. They wanna they, they wanna hear about faith from people that they know and that they trust. And so in our day and age Building trust with someone, building a genuine friendships with non Christians, is 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 an evangelistic activity. Mm-hmm.
2: We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Don Everts. Uh, the book is, uh, I should say, Everts. The book is titled "The Reluctant Witness: Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations." You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Don Everts. He's the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. And yes, that is the correct word to use when we're talking about. Uh, spiritual conversations and how we can engage in them in a way that is a delight is the subject of this book. Now, in um, The Reluctant Witness, you begin with um, by encouraging your readers uh, to have an, uh, to take an honest and uncomfortable, perhaps self-evaluation of the state of our witness. And then in, in the first chapter, uh, you encourage your readers um, to uh, to reckon with one particular fear that's causing many of us to avoid these kinds yeah. of, of uh, conversations.
4: Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it's the fear of offense. You know, when, mm-hmm. uh, in the surveys, when we talk to people, why don't you have more spiritual conversations, the, one, the ones who didn't? You know, what keeps you from engaging in more conversations about your faith? The number one response, there were a number of responses, and it's all fascinating, we can get into all of it, Georgine, but, but the number one response, by a long shot, was the fear that if I talk about my faith, it will bring up tension or an argument. And so, in our day and age, there's something about the plurality of our age, the secularness of our age, that there's this fear of offense. That if I'm, even if I'm just genuinely sharing about my faith and my experience of my faith, uh, there's this fear that that is going to offend the people around me. And, you know, there's, in some ways, in in our current age, there's no greater uh, transgression than being offensive Mm -hmm. in in that way. And so, that it's really like a cat that's got our tongue. Uh, uh, and, and it's like we're figuring out how to navigate uh, this season. You, you know, Paul talked about there will be times when the, gosp- when the gospel is in season, and there'll be times when it's out of season. And as our culture is becoming uh, more post-modern, post-Christian, the faith is less in season. And so we have a lot of people around us who don't share our faith and who aren't excited about Jesus like we are. <laughs> And and with that has come this fear, uh, and so that is that's something we all have to reckon with, and and really get honest about how much we are holding our tongue, how much we are keeping from our friends a really important part of our life because we're afraid of what might happen if we bring it up.
2: Mm. Now, the, the scripture says that the gospel is offensive to those who don't believe, but there's a difference between the gospel itself and the difficulty that some might have in embracing it and being offensive as we're presenting the gospel.
4: Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, 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 I, and that's one of the other reasons that people give for not engaging in more spiritual conversations is because of awkward or argumentative or mean-spirited ways that they have seen other Christians talk about their faith. And so they have that kind of bad example. It leaves a bad taste in their mouth, and, and it sort of leaves them saying, well, I don't, I don't want to be party to that. I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, so, so you're right. Uh, and the, 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 other, the other good news, though, is that even though there's this huge fear of offense, which, ha- which has silenced the church in, in a lot of ways, the good news that was revealed in the findings is that we probably have less to be afraid of than we imagine. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when we talked with non-Christians and we surveyed non-Christians, uh, and this was interesting, non-Christians and Christians alike, the overwhelming majority, are glad they had their last spiritual conversation. So even non-Christians are glad they had their last uh, spiritual conversation. And when we drilled down and said, was there conflict in, in or tension in that spiritual conversation, whether there was or wasn't, actually did not move the needle on how glad they were for the conversation. In other words, even if tension does come up, it doesn't ruin the conversation. We, we have this feeling that it's going to ruin the friendship or it's going to ruin the conversation. It actually doesn't. And the overwhelming majority of non-Christians say they were glad for the last spiritual conversation they had. When, when we ask Christians and non-Christians, think of, think of the most recent spiritual conversation you've been a part of. What are the emotions that you felt during that time? And, and the top three that come up uh, are joy, laughter, and peace. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So, so it turns out that people actually really enjoy um, spiritual conversations. Um, so there's less to be afraid of uh, than we thought. And, and that's good news. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, in your third chapter, you uh, take a look at the five most popular myths that most of us have about spiritual conversations, that being... Yeah. One of the the very important. Can you share just one other of these misconceptions that we might have that that make us reluctant to share our faith?
4: Absolutely. Uh, one of the myths is that if I'm in a spiritual conversation, particularly with a non-Christian, I'm going to be called upon to give the exact right answer to all of their questions, and if I get the answer wrong,
2: that's it. You know,
4: their their eternity you could hang in the balance, right? Or I will I will discredit Christianity or something like that. Uh, And it turns out people are not actually looking for a wise guru on the mountaintop who is going to kind of regurgitate the perfect answer. Rather, what they're more interested in is sort of an awkward Sherpa who's going to walk along with them and walk along the path with them and say, well, let's try this and let's look at this. So people are more interested in people who honor their questions, take their questions seriously. And and uh, and with dignity, and say, well, let, let's look for answers together. And, and he, you know, here's here's what I read in the Bible. Here's what I find. And so that's you know, I've known a lot of people, a lot of people who are afraid to bring up their faith because they feel like they're going to be asked some way mm-hmm. tricky question, and and that keeps them quiet. And the reality is, people don't want pristine answers. They want a friend who's willing to get honest with them.
2: Yeah, and a, a faith that seems approachable. You know, a regular person like most That's of right. us can actually walk it out. <laughs> That's well, right. finally, in the last two chapters of uh, your book, The Reluctant Witness, um you focus on uh, people who are eager conversationalists now we might interpret that to mean these are people who have a natural bent toward engaging in spiritual conversation that may not necessarily be the case you gave yourself as an example of someone who is yeah. rather shy but but yet have had these encouraging and wonderful conversations tell us a little bit about those who would uh, you would characterize as eager conversationalists and then in the the last chapter how we might um practice for ourselves these conversational habits that can actually be added to um, what we lack
4: yeah, it's great yeah the, the, the really good news is when you take these quarter of all Christians and, and, and you dive deep into the their answers to all the questions and the interviews we had with them uh, and what you know do they have what do they have in common that's what we looked for the people who are having lots of spiritual conversations and what we did not find, is that there's some demographic feature that they share, like they're all female, or they're all extroverted, or they're all from the South, or something like that. Because if that was the case, well, then there's no luck for the rest of us, right? But it's not what we found. What we found is that they have certain attributes, certain beliefs, uh, uh, certain habits that they share that any Christian can actually grow in. And so that's really encouraging. So, for an, I'll give you a couple examples. Yeah. Eager conversationalists expect and look for spiritual conversations. So they 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 don't think that spiritual conversations are only for like really really special times or really really special places, uh, and in religious contexts. They believe that spiritual conversations happen in everyday life, and so they're on the lookout for them. And and we can be the same way, right? So I can go through my day and say. God, I wonder if there's any, spiritual, any people you're going to have me run into today. Uh, or uh, they gently push through awkward moments. That's another thing that marks uh, eager conversationalists, that if something does get awkward while talking about the faith, they don't run for the hills. They just kind of gently push through it. Uh, and so we can do the same. Uh, there's been whole books written about the fact that actually things get more interesting for everyone involved if we're willing to kind of sit with a little awkwardness in a conversation rather than recoiling from it. And so that, that, that's another example. Um, they also understand uh, that God wants to use them to share their faith. And so eager conversationalists are more likely to have a self-perception that part of what it means to be an everyday Christian is to be open to sharing my faith with other people. Whereas reluctant conversationalists view it as the job of the church to share the gospel, not their own. And so we can follow in their footsteps and, you know, reckon with Bible passages where Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, uh, you will be my witnesses, etc. So those are ways, th- those are things we all can grow in. Uh, and I've even experienced uh, people who've been interacting with this research and had their eyes opened to some of these things who, who try Uh, to get into more conversations than they have. And they realize, well, it didn't kill me. It was actually really fun.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I mentioned, your last chapter is on engaging in everyday conversations with, you know, uh, regular people having these spiritual conversations. And I wish we had time to go into that, but there's, uh, yeah. there's so much packed into this little book, The Reluctant Witness. I would encourage our, um, our listeners to pick up a copy because I think you'll find some encouragement and perhaps a bit of courage in reading other stories and what's really true about um, people you might, in fact, engage in these conversations with. Again, The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. Don Everts, thank you so much for talking with us today.
4: Well, thank you, Georgine. It's been a delight to have a spiritual
2: conversation with you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> bye, bye. Again, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment with our last segment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Marriott Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zen: Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. Regnery History Book. We'll be talking with her about that tomorrow. Well, YouTube is restricting access to PragerU. It's one of the best producers of videos out there from a conservative perspective. Anyway, he released a video on the Ten Commandments, and they've labeled it as mature content that's inappropriate for sensitive Audiences, The Ten Commandments. On well, a series of posts to Twitter on Tuesday, PragerU reported that hundreds of their videos, including many of those focused on explaining the Ten Commandments, were being restricted by YouTube. This limits viewers' access to the videos and limits ad revenue going to PragerU. Our last count says... Um, PragerU in a tweet. Our last count was uh, conducted in April, and at that time, there were over 100 PragerU videos restricted, including over 50 of our five-minute videos. There are now over 240 PragerU videos restricted, including over 100 of our five-minute videos, tweeted the organization. Well, among the newly restricted videos are more videos from our Ten Commandments series with Dennis Prager, including Do Not Misuse God's Name, Do Not Steal, Do Not Covenant, Why would YouTube restrict these videos? Are they endorsing, stealing, covening? Well, Prager, you added a link to a petition demanding that YouTube remove the age restrictions to the videos. And as of Wednesday morning, there were about 643,000 people ...who've signed on. There is no excuse for Google and YouTube censoring and restricting any PragerU videos... ...which are produced with the sole intent of educating people of all ages about America's founding values. They are innocuous in terms of being inappropriate uh, based on one's age. We need your help to tell YouTube that their restriction on our videos is wrong. Join the thousands of Americans who value the free exchange of ideas. Well, PragerU is a conservative YouTube channel with more than one million subscribers... That's headed by conservative radio host Dennis Prager, who is an associate with Salem Media. YouTube has censored many of their videos by either blocking or restricting the content to only uh, be seen by mature audiences. Now, these are, again, innocuous in terms of being inappropriate based on one's age. Well, in October of 2017, Prager U filed a lawsuit against Google and YouTube in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, accusing them of ideologically driven discrimination. Now, we've heard lots of conservatives make that same charge. Well, in March of the following year, 2018, U.S. District Judge Lucy Koh dismissed the federal lawsuit, arguing that Google and YouTube are private entities who create their own video sharing social media websites and make decisions about whether and how to regulate content that's been uploaded on their website. Well, PragerU appealed the, uh, Judge Coe's decision before the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and we'll have oral arguments um, read shortly. Well, in January, PragerU filed a second lawsuit against Google and YouTube and the Superior Court of California for the County of Santa Clara, accusing them of violating state law. Well, the state lawsuit argued that YouTube censored PragerU through its restricted mode, a filtering protocol that's used to block content deemed inappropriate for sensitive audiences and via its advertising restrictions, which prohibits advertisers from accessing videos deemed inappropriate for advertising. Well, Google, YouTube use these filtering mechanisms as a pretext to justify restricting and censoring PragerU videos. And Google and YouTube continue to do so, even though the content complies with their written criterion. Uh, we're going to continue to follow this story, but it's just an example. We made comment about this in the first hour of today's program of the challenge of uh, having the um, access to some of these platforms to express Conservative views. And then, on something of a lighter note, there are four companies that have hidden Bible verses on their products that you may or may not be aware of. Uh, These uh, popular Christian companies that are known for embracing and living out biblical values. From fast foods, joints like Chick-fil-A, to craft stores like Hobby Lobby, these businesses are on the front line of not only providing stellar service, but also fully living out the gospel message and sharing a bit of that message every time you make a purchase. But did you know there are also some Christian businesses that go a step further and actually post Bible verses and Christian references on their products? Some of these hidden placements might surprise you, but the messages are sure to inspire. For example, in and out Burger. One of the most well-known brands in, uh, to play Scripture on its product is In-N-Out Burger. Uh, the fast food chain prints verses including John 3.16 a reference to one of the most popular verses and well-known verses in the New Testament on the bottom of their cups and wrappers. The In-N-Out Bible verse is pretty inspiring but not surprising as the company has a rich faith history as do many of the other companies who include Scripture on their products. Um, then there is, uh, let's see... Golden eggs. Anyone operating a carton of, um, I should say, opening a carton of golden eggs sold by Aldi stores will notice something under the, um, the top cover, an inspiring Bible verse. Under each carton of eggs, customers will find the text of Psalm 118, 24, which reads, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, Aldi shoppers have uh, said that the eggs are packaged by Rose Acre Farms, which also has the Bible verse prominently displayed on its website. The Aldi reviewer reached out uh, to the farm and received a um, backstory saying the Bible verse came about on our cartons from our founder, David Rust who held that that verse special to him throughout his life. He had it placed on Rose Acre Farm egg cartons in 1980, where it's remained to this day. It's always garnered letters of sincere appreciation from customers all across the country as a positive message of hope. Well, and then there's Forever 21. Clothing brand Forever 21 is founded by Don and Jin Chang. The devout Christians moved to America from Korea in 1981, proceeded to grow a clothing empire, What some might not realize, though, is that John 3.16 is uh, printed on the bottom of every bag. Now, I've noticed it, and I thought, hmm, that doesn't seem to connect. For one thing, I'm feeling guilty about being in Forever 21 because it's been a long time since I've been 21. Well, that scripture reads, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, there's just a bit more updated. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Better understood in this um, generation. But these are just some uh, examples of business people who say, yeah, our faith is important enough to us that we're going to declare in some small way, Forever 21's Bible verse decision is yet another inspiring one to take into account as you do your shopping. And then, um, let's see, did I already mention um, Yeah, In-N-Out Burger? It seems In-N-Out Burger isn't the only fast food company to jump into the Bible verse mix. There is Cookout. It's a southern chain, so we don't have it here. But they also include Bible verses on their products, according to Business Insider. Cups and products include verses, and Christian music is played at some of its locations, something that creates what the Knoxville News Sentinel called an un common Christian atmosphere. And I have to admit, I, call, I uh, enjoy going to um, Hobby Lobby and hearing the music play, and every second or third song, I recognize this is a hymn, and I'm humming and, you know, just being encouraged by that. But in the uh, family, there's a lot of Christian influence, and they grew up in the South. It just kind of seemed natural, says Alan Brooks, opening director of Cookout. Um, We've got uh, scriptures on our cups and on the bags from the family scriptures that they like. It's just kind of stood out to them. Well, that uh, wraps the uh, burgers and it wraps our list of at least four companies that put verses prominently featured on their products that can bring some inspiration. And who knows what impact that might have in the life of someone who's struggling or seeking or just doesn't know which way to go or needs a, a reminder of how good God is. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. And on Friday, we'll lighten up and, yeah, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Producing today's program, James Blend. Clark Hilton is our engineer. And thank you for listening to The Georgine Rice Show, making it part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.